0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In the beginning, Colonel Nicholson seems to be a stickler for principle, willing to die rather than have his officers do menial labor in a Japanese prison camp. In the end, his principles seem to be a cover for personal vanity. He's willing to put his officers to work building a bridge for his enemies, as long as it leaves him with a legacy. The Bridge on the River Kwai is a reflection on the meaning of work and whether the ravages of time, if not war, imply that being happy in one's work, to use a phrase repeated several times in the film, is nothing more than futility and madness. Is work the key to freedom, or is it inevitably a form of bondage? How do we distinguish desire to be creative from the desire for prestige? When is destroying something more creative than building it? This is Wes Alwan.
1: This is Aaron Alonik.
0: And you're listening to Subtext. So Aaron, have you been happy in your work?
1: (laughs) Um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And
0: what does that mean? I, I think that's the standout phrase for me in the movie
1: you know that i i'm so delighted that that's what i've seen this movie several times and this last time i was like i think this might be about work and the nature of all work and then i was like (laughs) no that's crazy so i think it's funny that you picked up on that
0: all right i think we're on the same page about that
1: (laughs) am i happy in my work i don't i don't know is anyone
0: well isn't work all madness in the end
1: well for sure
0: We'll find out in this episode (laughs) subtext. (laughs) So it's interesting because there are four places in which the phrase be happy in your work or some variation of that occurs. Hmm. And it starts with Saito talking to the newly arrived British soldiers and telling them, let me remind you of General Yamashita's motto, be happy in your work. And then he dismisses the soldiers. And of course, they don't flinch until Colonel Nicholson tells them to stand at ease. And then the next time, again at Saito, when he is upset with the lack of progress on the bridge, and then he gives his he gives a kind of theory about it, a theory about why it's not progressing. And he explains that to all the soldiers. And he basically says the officers are lazy. And they think they're too good to share your burdens. And that is not just. Therefore, you are not happy in your work. Therefore, the bridge does not progress. Mm. So he makes this connection between being happy in your work and um, the justice of whether the officers are going to share in that. And then the third time, he basically bribes them with red boxes. You know, He calls them presents, a token of regards for your efforts in the future. So let us be happy in our work. And then the final time, it's not Saito, it's Shears who says it. And he says it while they're cutting through the underbrush to go on their project to blow up the bridge, but they're walking with the female bearers. And basically, Joyce is hitting on one of them, calling her lovely, and Shears kind of walks by and says, be happy in your work. As you pointed out, I think this is about work, and there are different conceptions of work at work, <laughs> <laughs> including different conceptions in those instances. I think in the beginning, this idea, you know, General Yamashita's motto, the idea is that they're going to keep busy. And that's one form of happiness. You know, you're a slave. You've lost your honor. You're no longer a soldier. That's Saito's point of view. But um, you're going to keep busy. And that's the beginning point. But then this concept of work evolves over or that they're conflicting um, candidates for what it is to work over the course of the film.
1: Right. And one of them is the idea to sort of keep busy by being lazy. or um, Exactly. <laughs> to actively work against the idea of work that someone is imposing upon you, preferably by a way to make it look like you're doing their form of meaningful work, while you're also undermining it at the same time. So the wires get crossed there, you know, and then there's also the idea of sabotage as carried out by shears and that little commando troop and the commando mentality's similarity to, like, play. I think there are Mm -hmm. a lot of parallels made between, like, oh, this is just a game to you. Um, And so be happy in your work makes me think of work as being fulfilling, meaningful, fun, making work enjoyable, maybe making it like a game, uh, which is itself, I think, a parallel for war in the film too. Like the lack of seriousness involved in war or the play acting involved in war. So I think there are a lot of threads there. Like one of the most interesting moments for me was when Shears is first going to the commando school. He's first been invited there. And there's that moment that I always kind of thought was silly where he gets attacked by that commando in training. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, something similar to him had just happened to him in the jungle as he had escaped from the POW camp. And so I think for a long time, I read that moment just as being indicative of Shears' mental state, that he's this tough guy on the outside, but obviously his recent experiences have had more effect on him than maybe he had realized or that the audience had realized. But, you know, looking at it again, I realized it was really clever for Showing the extent to which so much of war is training for war, and so much of training is this play acting among your fellow men. So you're casting them like in the role of the enemy and then sort of trying to sneak attack them, whatever, you know, um, carrying out all these war games, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so those particularly slippery boundaries between like who is your enemy and who is your friend or who is your comrade. I think is related to this idea of work because they're joined by this play acting that's also inherent in this idea of sabotage and working against, like appearing to be busy. I don't know how to tie those two things together, but I think they seem to be related somehow.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. A bit is made of who people were in peacetime, like what they did. So for instance, warden was a professor at Oxford, right? Mm -hmm. And Joyce, the Canadian kid, was an accountant and something is made of the fact that it was really boring and repetitious. He checked figures that had been checked several times before and would be checked several times after him. There's a lot in this movie that's evocative of the potential futility of work or whether it's meaningful. This is one of the things that Nicholson wonders, you know, does anything I've done had an effect? Will it be remembered? And so, you know, the way... Joyce's participation, because they're not Warden and his commanding officer, are not sure that Joyce is the right candidate. But the idea is that, well, he's going to be engaged in something which is much more interesting than accounting by going on this trip to blow up the bridge. But I wanted to bring that back to your idea about how sabotage fits into all of this, right? And destruction, because we have. You know, nominally, the creative work that's done in the film is done by Nicholson to create the bridge. And, then, you know, at the end of it, he is very proud of what he's done. And um, seemingly, right, that's mm-hmm. the constructive thing to do. But it works against the larger project of the organization in which he's participating the British Army and the Allies and the war effort. So it's madness in another sense, as the medical officer Clifton. Puts it. So you have someone like Warden, who's been a professor, and he has this kind of interesting relationship to his plastic explosives, right? Mm
1: -hmm. It's like
0: he's transferred his professorial curiosity into playing with explosives. So I was trying to make a connection. I think you were making a connection between sabotage and play. So there's an element of kind of delight and absorption that you see in Warden's relationship to this work, which is ultimately going to be destructive. And he's done it several times before. So he's taken down a few bridges, it turns out. You have to know something about engineering to do that too, just like in the same way that you have to know something about engineering to put the bridge up. You have to know where to place the explosives to take it down.
1: Yeah. I'm thinking about the moment with the plastic explosive where doesn't he sort of like pretend to throw it? Or no, he throws it up in the air, and then Holden or Shears rather catches it, and yeah. <laughs> is really nervous about it. Right. So like, and then he
0: um, and then he says, you know, yeah, it doesn't explode unless it's been ignited.
1: Yeah, and again, there's this idea of play acting or mime, and I'm I'm thinking of this maybe in relation to, I'm wondering if it's useful in relation to your point about these soldiers' former lives to think about play acting in war, even like in relation to say the draft. Like this is a situation in which most of the men maybe not most, but many of the men that find themselves in this war have been cast in this role through no initiative of their own. And so I think there's something here maybe about the fact that any soldier is miming at being a soldier, sort of play acting. Like I think of the moment with Joyce in the jungle when he um, has that moment to kill that soldier Mm -hmm. and they look at each other and that soldier looks like he's about 15 years old or something. And then of course, there's a the moment where you see the pictures and the necklace that he's carrying with him after he's been killed, you know, that he's just this little kid, basically, or just this normal, sweet boy. Well, I don't know if he's sweet. Maybe he's not. But anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: he's the enemy, Aaron. He's the I know,
1: enemy. <laughs> I know. And so this idea that you have this former life that you really are, and then you put on the guise of the soldier, and some people fill that role better better than others. Um, Shears, of course, has also been play-acting Within the play acting, right, because he's also given himself a higher rank in the power vacuum of the POW camp when he realized that it was to his uh, his benefit to do that. And so I wonder if what Nicholson doesn't understand about war is that the element of play acting inherent in all of it, and the element of sabotage, miming, of acting like you're doing something and really doing something else. Nicholson, it seems to me, sees everything in such Black and white terms are in such serious terms um, that he's not capable of understanding the sort of idea of play or flexibility that seems to be inherent in the job itself, in the job of this play acting, and also in the idea of being successful um, at war. You have to kind of be able to adapt, play with new circumstances not just read the script as written, but sort of improv your way out of situations. And so his lack of ability to act or to take things less seriously maybe is what makes him mad, but also sane, you know, according to obviously war is madness. So it's a strange bind. Mm
0: -hmm. He's supposed to be acting on rigidly on principle. And, you know, there's these scenes with Clipton, where he says to <laughs> Clipton, you have much to learn about the army. Um, in response to Major Clipton, the medical officer, again, you know, to his kind of shock or surprise that Nicholson wants to build the bridge for the Japanese and to do it well. The way Clipton responds to him early on is, or actually no, this is a little bit later on, when I think Clipton questions him for a second time after the bridge has already gotten going and it's going well and Clipton asks Nicholson, what's going on with Saito? How's he doing with all of this? And Nicholson says, he's been most reasonable since we took over. And then Clipton says, well, I wonder what he's thinking. And Nicholson says, I haven't the foggiest and sort of brushes that off. And then Clipton asks, are you convinced building this bridge is a good idea? And Nicholson gives this speech about, um, he says, don't you agree? The men's morale is high. That discipline has been restored, that their condition has been improved, and so on. So he switches back and forth between this position of being rigidly principled and then worried about his men. So early on, it's just about um, the officers are not going to do any work. We're going to follow the Geneva Conventions, the letter of the law. His rationale for building the bridge is initially, there's this idea that because he was ordered to surrender he would be disobeying orders not to build the bridge for the Japanese, which is absurd, completely absurd.
1: I don't think that's about the bridge. I think that was just about the idea of not escaping.
0: Yep, you're right. So that's about escaping.
1: But that plays into your point.
0: On the one hand, there's principle and following the letter of the law. And on the other, which is something that Shears thinks is absurd and opposes. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the other, there's this idea that he can prevent his men from becoming slaves if they can work on the order of the officers, they can avoid being slaves and take pride in what they're doing, and prevent um, disorder in the camp. The reason I'm bringing all that up is that both of those in a way are undermined because in the end, it turns out that Nicholson does have his officers work when it's necessary because they can't get the bridge done without it. And then at the very end of the movie, he's willing to betray his own side. So what we learn there is that this hasn't really been about principle or about his men exactly. It's just simply about all the other stuff which he talks about, which is his desire to leave a legacy or to do something meaningful, to make a difference. What I'm suggesting is that his focus on principles and all the rest of it seems to be a cover for vanity or for pride, let's say, for something personal at least. I don't know if you agree on that, but...
1: I do. I think also though, um, and maybe this chimes with what you're saying too, I do think that there's something here about Nicholson's sense of hierarchy as being paramount. And I think that's tied up with personal pride, but in terms of a larger civic pride. So I think that his desire for the men to be happy is also working in tandem with his idea of hierarchy because he wants everyone to be, I think, content in their station. And uh, he feels Mm -hmm. as though he is being a good leader when his men are fulfilled, when they're being inspired and all those things, right? Because that's part of his job as a colonel, uh, to keep this order, to make sure that the men are industrious and feel happy in their work. And so the way that I see the turn is that he sees an opportunity... So he wants to keep these hierarchies very strictly enforced in this region of lawlessness as a way of like preserving his troops' pride and understanding of their own positionality. I think that when he sees the opportunity for um, the bridge to be constructed by these good, ideal Englishmen, his sense of hierarchy is then transposed into being something on a much larger scale, which is almost like a proselytizing move on his part you know like it's going to be a lesson to these japanese people that we're better than you or that we're more disciplined that we could build a better bridge. so the idea of hierarchy from colonel over the men or the officers over the men the officers not working it becomes the idea of them as englishmen being superior to the rabble in the jungle um as he thinks of them And so I think that then the completion of the bridge becomes a project of preserving his very British and colonial idea of what hierarchy means. And so I think there's a lot of personal pride there for sure. And there is that interesting idea about leaving a legacy. Um, But I think it's also tied up in this, like I said, civic or national sense of false pride that has to be exerted.
0: Clipton has, you know, earlier on expresses, again, some reserves about all of this. And, and Nicholson says, honestly, Clipton, there are times when I don't understand you at all. It's a fun part of the film that Nicholson treats everyone else as if they're crazy for even questioning <laughs> his idea right. about the bridge. So, Clipton says, well, you know, it could be construed as collaboration with the enemy, perhaps even a treasonable activity. And then Nicholson again, gives these two different sorts of explanation, one kind of rule or principle based or law based, and then the other utilitarian. So the first one is we're prisoners of war. We haven't the right to refuse work. And then Clipton says, I understand that, but why do we have to work so well? (laughs) And this is what Clipton says, must we build them a better bridge than they could have built themselves? If you had to operate on Saito, would you do your best or let him die? And Nicholson responds, would you prefer to see this battalion disintegrate in idleness? Would you have it said that our chaps can't do a proper job? Don't you realize how important it is to show these people? This is the point you were getting, at, I think. That they can't break us in body or in spirit? Take a good look. One day the war will be over. I hope the people who use this bridge in years to come will remember how it was built and who built it. Not a gang of slaves, but soldiers. British soldiers, even in captivity. And then Clifton says, Yes, sir. And then Nicholson says, You're a fine doctor, but you've a lot to learn about the army. So the concepts of principle and law are tied up with the idea of keeping order among the troops and giving them something to live for, even in captivity, and making sure that they're not slaves, which is tied in turn to um, showing these people the point you were getting at, kind of larger civic pride. Mm-hmm. And I kind of chuckled at the one day the war will be over <laughs> remark because I had a kind of flashback to Apocalypse now where Lieutenant Colonel Kilgore gives a speech and it ends with that line, right? It's saying, one day this war is gonna end. And that's it. And he gets up. <laughs> <laughs> this is the classic trope on which that kind of satirical comment, towards which that kind of satirical scene is directed, where the war will be over one day, and then what do we want to? happen afterwards, what are we going to have to show for it than all this destruction? Because you know the way the war is, it's inherently not a creative act, but a destructive act. And being a captive and a slave essentially seems to hamper one's potential for real work or for real creativity. And you see like in Apocalypse Now, Kilgore's solution right, is to kind of like try to bring home into the theater of war and to surf and to do all that stuff and to pretend it's not happening, pretend they're at home or in California or wherever. And Nicholson's solution is to see if he can have a little society within captivity and to do something that's genuinely creative within a larger context that is inherently destructive and leaves him thinking, what is it all for unless I do something like this?
1: Yeah. You're exposing my kind of sympathy for Nicholson. You know, I was thinking about Billy Budd, too. and I know I, I kind of like argued for the captain in <laughs> Billy Budd.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought of um, that, too, actually. But yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, but the idea of there is something inherently more fulfilling about the kind of creativity that is building something that you think will last. Again, to go back to this idea of play acting, like that's a form of creativity, too, right? But it just doesn't look like much performances are temporary, you know, and you know stage performances are not recorded. And so it doesn't end up feeling like much, even if it does kind of exercise that creative faculty. Um, you know, I'm talking about the idea of like maybe the men banding together and trying to actively sabotage in cleverer ways, which they already are doing, I, I think, while Nicholson is in the oven right? They're they're sort of working against each other on the bridge. But anyway, I'm thinking too about the idea of creativity versus destruction and how it might be related to um, the idea of Harry Carey and the clashing sort of codes of honor between Saito and Nicholson, because they run very, very close to each other. Of course, I mean, they're basically the same person in a way. I think Saito is like far more sympathetic, actually.
0: They even repeat each other's lines at one point. Like it's madness oh, yeah. to escape. They both have that line right after yeah. one after the other. But yeah,
1: and they call each other crazy. Yeah, but I think Saito is actually a more like a Shears kind of character, or like the warden in terms of his background. You know, I think Nicholson being a professional military man makes him, by degrees, kind of more insane than Saito, who we see have a very touchingly vulnerable moment where he cries over the hmm. um, the bridge uh, being completed by the English. Which is by the just unrelated to anything. It's hilarious to me, and I looked it up, and other people have pointed this out that the Japanese can't build just as good of a bridge as the English. <laughs> like, what what is going on here? Like, they don't have good engineers. Give me a break. They probably have much better engineers. Well, than this the was one of
0: the complaints about the film. Oh,
1: really? <laughs> people found it
0: offensive, and of course, it's untrue. Right. A lot of this is fictionalized. There really is a real someone who corresponds to Nicholson in real yes. life, and that guy, yes. of course, did try to sabotage the bridge and they would have thought of it as treasonous collaboration to do anything other than try to do that. So yeah, completely fictionalized by, I think it's the novelist, right? It's based on a novel by Pierre Mm Boulet, who wrote Planet of the Apes, another one of my favorites. Oh,
1: he did. Okay. I didn't realize he wrote both those.
0: Yeah. So anyway, yeah, but you were saying that... uh,
1: Yeah, they're sort of conflicting ideas of honor, which as I say, you know, run really parallel, but also conflict. So I think the mere fact that Nicholson and his men end up at this camp is the first place where that sense of honor, which usually runs parallel, clashes. So I think that for Saito, anyone who ends up in his camp is inherently without honor, right? Because they haven't died.
0: To surrender means to have lost your honor and to no longer be a soldier. That's what he says. Yeah.
1: And then there's this idea of the fact that if you fail at your work, then um, the cost of that is your own, your own life, that honor and life are dependent upon each other. And I think that's true for Nicholson. You know, the ways in which Nicholson carries that out, I think, look very different. And one can even make the argument, perhaps, that Nicholson himself has committed a kind of ritual suicide of his own humanity to military service, you might say, right? He's mentioned that he's been in the service now for 28 years and he's been home for like 10 months of that time. You know, he's essentially put to death, if you will, any kind of outside reality or identity. Whereas Saito maintains, I think, a certain amount of humanity, outside interests. Like we learned that he was educated in England, that he wanted to study art, you know. He's a much more interesting figure and a more well-rounded personality, I think.
0: I'm thinking he's uh, <laughs> he's got something in common with Mrs. Robinson, actually.
1: <laughs> that's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can see him sitting on the bed, rolling up his stockings, <laughs> smoking hey, a cigarette. he was quite a, he was I, quite a good-looking was guy. I wanted to be an artist. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah, there's so much in, that's interesting in what you said. They're so alike, and they both seem to be so honor-driven, and yet... There are some differences and it's kind of complicated to untangle those differences. I still haven't, I didn't fully do that. So for instance, do you lose your honor by surrendering or are you maintaining your honor by obeying an order, which is what Nicholson seems to be, you know, suggested, right? You follow the law, I was ordered to surrender, I did that, so I can't escape. But for Saito, it's a loss of honor to actually surrender. You know, you could see those as both Honor-driven, but in different directions. And then one of the things about Saito is it seems like his honor is more, right? You mentioned the role of hierarchy and by implication, obedience for Nicholson. But it's there for Saito in a different way. He has to get the bridge done because otherwise he's going to be in big trouble. What he says to Nicholson is, you know, do you know what I'm going to have to do if I don't get this done on time? Nicholson says, what? And he says, I'll have to commit seppuku. You know, I have to kill myself. And then Saito says, what would you do if you were me? And Nicholson says, basically, I suppose I'd have to kill myself in a very nonchalant way. (laughs) And then that kind of more obedient conception of honor shows up in his conception of work, right? As being busy and being obedient, something like that. So there's what it means to be happy and your work is different for Saito than it is for Nicholson. For Nicholson, it seems to have something to do with pride and one's creation. And then also the other stuff that you were mentioning this kind of larger civic pride and the order of the community. And for Saito, it seems to have more to do strictly with obedience and following orders and fitting into a hierarchy. And then this shifts because my interpretation of why Saito cried, and I could well be wrong about this, but we'll see. You can let me know. My interpretation was that he had been humiliated by the way Nicholson took over. So basically he had to essentially give in to Nicholson. He was defeated by Nicholson because it was more important to get the bridge built than to win his battle of wills with Nicholson. So he gives in and says, okay, your officers don't have to work. (laughs) And then you see at the first meeting Nicholson basically runs that meeting and says, Hey, you guys, you know, put the bridge in the wrong place. So we got to change that. And this and you know, runs the whole meeting. It's like he's in charge. And I saw Saito as being humiliated by that. And so it goes from being, I got to get the bridge built on time or I have to kill myself, to once the bridge gets built, I have to kill myself because this is really humiliating. And so you see him preparing for that, right? He does his calligraphy, he cuts off his ponytail. I'm sure there's a name, proper name for that. He puts the knife in his vest, he takes it out at one point on the bridge. You know, he's, he's preparing to kill himself once this is all over. Doesn't get the chance, of course, because he is killed. Ultimately, I think for Saito, the loss of honor involves the loss of command, which is something he simply can't avoid because the project of building the bridge overshadows whatever power he has in the hierarchy. Whereas for Nicholson, the project of building the bridge is his power and is supposed to be the thing that frees him and his men from being slaves. I don't think I've really done much work in untangling the two different conceptions of honor at work there, or if they are two different conceptions, maybe they're just sort of expressing themselves differently at different times. So let's pause to talk about our sponsors for this episode, starting with AG1 by Athletic Greens. AG1 is a powder with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. It's designed to support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. There was a time when I used to take a bunch of different vitamin supplements. I would take them in different pills. And I gave up on doing that a long time ago. I was not a fan of the fillers in those pills and how I felt after taking them. The whole process was too complicated. So I've actually really been enjoying taking AG1 for the last few weeks. You just add one scoop of it to water and it actually tastes good, kind of like a mild tropical taste. So a much simpler way to get not just vitamins, but bunch of other healthy stuff in one scoop. It's lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. And a lot of people just take it as a uh, substitute for multivitamin. But the difference is, unlike a lot of multivitamins that you can get off the shelf, this is designed to have the highest quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. It costs you less than $3 a day, So it's an investment in your health that's cheaper than your cold brew habit. For every purchase, Athletic Greens donates to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry in the United States. In 2020, AG donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. So it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com subtext. Again, that is athleticgreens.com subtext to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Our other sponsor for this episode is Buck Mason. So I was really excited when I found out that Buck Mason was going to be sponsoring this episode, in part because I knew that meant that they were going to send me free clothes, but also I had always wanted to try Buck Mason and I had never gotten around to it. I really liked the look. I'm a fan of the tailored look, but it has to be, for me, it has to be cut right or else it's going to be too small on me. So I was very happy to find that everything fit me really well. They sent me a hoodie, which is absolutely fantastic. It fits great. It looks great. And overall, Buck Mason is a really good place to go for the essentials. Jeans, shirts, jackets, and all really well made. It's the type of clothing that can easily become your go-to favorites. The kind of stuff that in the morning you just instinctively reach for. Once you try Buck Mason, they'll become your go-tos too. Head over to buckmason.com slash subtext and get a free t-shirt with your first order. That's B-U-C-K-M-A-S-O-N dot com slash subtext to get a free t-shirt with your first order. buckmason.com slash subtext. Okay, back to the show.
1: Yeah, I think all that's really good. I think too that they have... And this is slightly slanted the, away from your point, but maybe it's related. I'm thinking about their idea of waste. What is a waste? Because this honor um, that Saito has supersedes... Nicholson is only too happy to surrender when given the order to do so. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> you know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't want to waste any unnecessary deaths or whatever on something that isn't necessary. You know, he would rather just go to the POW camp. So for Nicholson, perhaps, if he could see maybe a troop under Saito's command sort of go out fighting rather than obeying a surrender order, he would see that probably as madness, but also as a kind of a waste. I'm thinking about this in terms of something that Nicholson says about the men who escaped. He Mm -hmm. says, oh, three men dead and for what? So he's kind of implying that death is a waste, yet he's also like willing to be shot by um, machine guns over the idea of not wanting his officers to work. And of course, the justification that Saito gives, which is actually kind of a good one and as far as Geneva Convention or Geneva Codes violations go, having your officers do manual labor is pretty. <laughs> <laughs> <Lowdown on the laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But Saito's uh, justification for it is also good, which is related to this idea of waste. Which is, why should I feed people who don't pull their own weight in a POW camp? Why should I feed a bunch of officers who are sitting around doing nothing? Which I don't know. I feel like that's a reasonable. <laughs> I mean, I far be it from me to you know criticize Geneva Code, but I'm just saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: they're lazy. They're mooching off the Japanese army.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, there's something to that, that limited resources in the middle of the jungle that, you know, you're not going to have these officers just sit around. So Nicholson, and he has that great moment where the guns come out and he says to Saito, I'm warning you. <laughs> it's like, you're about to die. And he's still so arrogant. Like he's warning him, like, what's gonna happen? You know, it's only because of a plot intervention that he doesn't get shot. But anyway, it's just hilariously prideful.
0: <laughs> There's almost a smugness to it. It's just, you know. Oh, yeah. He's like infuriatingly stubborn and
1: and he's willing to let his, you know, to be killed himself and to let his officers die on principle. But the idea of trying to escape when Shears has made it very plain that the odds of survival staying in the camp are worse than escaping.
0: And he also says, you at least have to have the fantasy of escape or you go insane.
1: That's right. Which is another really important thing because, you know, Nicholson seems to think that duty and just pure pride of being an excellent British specimen is enough to keep people alive. And I think Shears is far more astute about psychology, which is that the Union Jack can't keep you warm at night, I guess I can if you wrap yourself in it. But anyway, um, (laughs) but the the idea is, is that, you know, you have to have a life outside of that. You have to dream of an escape outside of that and see it as a possibility. You can't just be a perfect little worker drone and take pride out of that, though apparently Nicholson can.
0: Yeah, wrapping yourself in the Union Jack metaphorically, figuratively, will keep you warm. You would have to do it literally. But yeah, it's interesting. What Nicholson does say is about escape is that normally it would be an obligation. He just, he has an absurd rationalization, right? It's actually an obligation to try to escape. That would be following the letter of the law. But then he introduces that absurd idea about how he's ordered to surrender. And that's when Shears confronts him with the, you intend to uphold the letter of the law despite the cost. And then... Nicholson says, without the law, there would be no civilization. (laughs) And Shears says, there is no civilization here. And Nicholson says, well, we have the opportunity to introduce it. So drop the subject of escape. It really is crazy. It's madness. The one element of truth and sanity there is just that it's indisputable that he takes a bunch of guys who are undisciplined and behaving in more of the Shears way, the kind of cynical way, you know, at the beginning of the movie, Shears is basically robbing the dead of possessions and using them to bribe Japanese soldiers to pretend to be sick, to get out of work, right? Speaking of the whole problem of work, Shears' whole project is to evade work. And he's so serious about it that not only does he escape, you know, where the chances of survival are almost nil, but he has to go on this whole Journey where it seems like he almost dies several times, and then just gets really, really lucky in his pursuit ultimately, of a life of leisure and getting women and all that stuff. and then of course, it backfires. but <laughs> But the one bit of method in Nicholson's madness is just that if he can get his soldiers to work, then he can give them a kind of freedom. He can allow them to transcend their captivity and He looks to Shears at that point and says, are you with me there, commander? And Shears says, I hope they can remain soldiers, colonel. As for me, I'm just a slave, a living slave. And Nicholson's response is kind of funny because he's like, queer bird, even for an and then he stops himself (laughs) and says, he's been in isolation too long.
1: So you think that Nicholson's idea of work is good to a point, like in terms of a kind of work a day model, right? It's suitably distracting, but can maybe only carry you so far because you need a sort of more long-term project or something to be hopeful about, like the idea of escape or what have you. Um.
0: What makes it madness to do a project like the bridge? Why is that mad? On the one hand, it's because it's helping the Japanese. But on the other, it's because ultimately it is meaningless. It's going to be wiped out in some way or another. You know, if it's not wiped out by the war, it'll be wiped out by the ravages of time in a thousand years. It'll be a different bridge, right? So, our work is not preserved ever. That's the mad thing. We do all these things to make our lives meaningful. You know, we want to be creative, we want to do everything else that makes life meaningful, love and all that stuff, but it's time will destroy all of it. So, I think in a larger sense, all you can do is what Nicholson is doing which is to ignore the fact that you are a captive of time and circumstance and the necessities of life right that's the larger captivity in which we are all stuck you know i think his worries about legacy are complicated right because he thinks the bridge is going to you know he puts the plaque up on the bridge he thinks the bridge is going to be something that he and the soldiers can be remembered for which of course in the long you know as i'm saying in the long run is not actually true we're stuck in the temporariness than <laughs> the temporality of our creative activities there's a really good interaction between him and saito on the bridge where saito is walking on the bridge sees nicholson leaning over the railing and then looks at the sky and sees the sun and says beautiful and he's referring to the way the sky looks And then Nicholson says, yes, beautiful, a first-rate job. I had no Mm -hmm. idea it would turn out so well. And then Saito just runs with that and says, yes, a beautiful creation. And then Nicholson says, I've been thinking tomorrow it will be years to the day that I've been in the service, 28 years in peace and war. I don't suppose I've been at home more than 10 months in all that time. Still, it's been a good life. I love India. I wouldn't have had it any other way. But there are times when suddenly you realize you're nearer the end than the beginning. You wonder, you ask yourself what the sum total of your life represents, what differences your being there at any time made to anything, or if it made any difference at all, really, particularly in comparison with other men's careers. I don't know whether that kind of thinking is very healthy, but I must admit I've had some thoughts along those lines from time to time. But tonight, And then before he can say the positive part of it, he interrupts himself and says, I got to be off. I got to get to some entertainment that the men are making for me. I love that scene because it says so much, right? (laughs) From Nicholson misinterpreting Saito and bringing it all back to himself to his struggling with the idea of whether the bridge is fulfilling the function that... He wants it to fulfill of making a difference by existing again, whether it's going to leave him a legacy and then the very telling part at the end, you know, where he cuts himself off and doesn't try to articulate the positive part of it because I think he's having trouble convincing himself of that. So
1: I love that scene too. I think that the other element of the long-term implications of work besides legacy is a much more practical consideration, but also maybe nobler consideration of the fact that work is about supporting your family and your community. And you know, there's this tension, which I think I've heard you speak on this before too, about the idea that you're working to support your family, but it also takes you away from your family. And the ways in which being a soldier, like especially in a foreign war, makes this really plain. And I'm thinking about how Nicholson seems to me like of necessity to be a man without a family. You know, I can't imagine him as being married or having children or anything mm. like that and acting the way that he does. Whereas it's very easy for me to imagine, and maybe he even talks about it. I know he talks about his parents, Saito, but it's very easy for me to imagine Saito having a family. And I think it's related to this idea of uh, an impoverished form of or understanding. Of work, whereas with shears, I mean, there seems to be endless opportunities for Shears to get it on with people in the, in the middle of the jungle, um, because that's what he's that's what he's looking for. <laughs> but it seems like, you know, the preoccupations of the soldiers, like in the scene that immediately follows, the one that we're talking about, where the soldiers put on the show, it's about returning home to their girlfriends and their wives, and they're obsessed, of course, as a bunch of soldiers are cut off from women with pinup kind of images and uh, obsession. Dressing
0: and dressing in drag.
1: (laughs) Right. And there's also, I think other elements of family that are kind of expressed by that little performance. I mean, um, I think that also highlights the idea that these are just little boys playing at war, you know, you have the young Canadian soldier who can't kill the young Japanese soldier. Both of them look like little kids. And you have the Thai women who accompany them, caring for them almost like their mothers. You know, I think of the moment where one of them is putting on, I mean, it's like kind of half sexy, half, I mean, it's stupid, but when she's putting the mud on Shears's body, like he's not capable of putting on his own body paint. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but the men in Nicholson's Command, when they put on the show, the end of that show has that romantic scene that's like comic because the big tall guy is comically playing the woman and the smaller guy is the man. Yeah, and then in the end, the little guy like jumps into the bigger guy's arms and she carries him off. And so there's this idea of like the mothering bond that's kind of tied. That's like a mother kind of gesture, like carrying a baby or something. And Nicholson can like laugh at this and thinks it's funny and everything, but you get the sense that like, he doesn't have these desires or, or something. Like he doesn't have a mother or a wife or it seems like all of his desire is directed towards these stop gaps, you know, of the daily distraction and building towards that legacy
0: yeah yeah that's really good he's so obsessed with this that he gives another speech this is kind of the counterpart to the bridge speech that he gives to saito he takes another stab at those ideas right after that performance is over i think i'll read some of this because i think this is another good one you know he says i'm sure i speak for all of us when i say this has been an enjoyable evening most of you move on tomorrow to a new camp and new construction. It's a pity you won't be here to see the first practical use of the bridge. So that's a really interesting thing to say, you know, since the practical use of the bridge will involve the enemy moving supplies in order to defeat the British and you know, defeat the Allies. So. However, you'll be glad to know the completion of this link in the railway will enable us to transport the sick and the disabled to the new camp by train. Colonel Saito has kindly permitted me to stay behind with Major Clipton and the sick men, and then we'll rejoin you in a few days' time. Now that your work here is finished, I suppose many of you feel somewhat let down. That is an amazing projection now. Um, (laughs) He's still wrestling with this idea of whether... Building the bridge has solved this problem, right? <laughs> so I suppose many of you feel somewhat let down. That's quite understandable. It's a very natural reaction. But one day, in a week, a month, a year, I wish I could do the Alec Guinness <laughs> accent. I wish I could impersonate his, you know his voice here because it's so perfect, right, for him. But one day, in a week, a month, a year, or that day when, God willing, we all return to our homes again. You're going to feel very proud of what you have achieved here in the face of great adversity. What you've done should be, and I think will be, an example to all our countrymen, soldier and civilian alike. You have survived with honor, that and more, here in the wilderness. You have turned defeat into victory. I congratulate you. Well done. You know, it's almost like Churchillian or something. (laughs) <laughs> a weird variation on that, of course, where they're going to feel proud of the thing that's going to help defeat the British. So it is, as I said before, I think it is madness, but there's also, there's something to it, but then is there something to it? That's sort of the letdown of having completed the project is the moment where you, you know, you go from being, feeling proud to having a return to existential angst. That's what the show did for him. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of think, making him think of love and family, although he does mention that, um, it leads him to ruminate, to further ruminate on whether the building of the bridge has helped him get over his career angst. But
1: It also maybe makes him uncomfortable and he has to return to the subject at hand because I think enjoyment is not something he's capable of. You know, he could laugh for a second, but then he has to get back to the,
0: yeah, you know, he can't his lose the thread. Right. His white whale. <laughs> That's right. (laughs) uh, Pine Bridge. Um, You've spoken a bit about something that really didn't fully occur to me, which is the element of play and play acting and perhaps a connection to destructiveness. And I don't know that... I mean, we touched on it a little bit. Maybe there's more there to talk about. So there's Major Warden, the professor, and his love of explosives
1: once you work in a university, anyone would love exposure. Yeah, well, I was
0: thinking, <laughs> yeah, there's something very academic about that, right? It's like yeah. the, the critic, right? Nicholson is the poet and he's the critic. <laughs> so he's Good there to, to analyze the bridge and take it down. <laughs> so very suitable to his position as, as professor. <laughs> and also it's something that's done and that has to be done in the cover of night, right? So he has to, it's like being down in the dusty seller as a scholar pouring over your books.
1: Or using a pseudonym yeah. in the paper when you destroy your enemy. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
0: So he's happy in his work in a way. I think I was trying to think about, well, who really is happy in their work in this movie? Is it Nicholson? Is it Warden? Warden in a way seems to be the most absorbed, kind of naturally playfully absorbed. This is, I was trying to make the connection to play here as well. So despite the comment about the critic, you could read this as there being something more flexible in true creativity. So tearing things down to start over or being willing to reorganize if something doesn't work. But anyway, that's just the kind of loose association I made to that. So I don't know if what he's doing is being the critic and the scholar, or if what he's doing is inherent in its destructiveness and inherently playful but at the very least that represents two more vectors for what it is that work means.
1: You know, being honest with myself, would I get more like if I was in a situation in which I had no no freedom to do anything else, would I take more interest in actually building something useful or in the work of sabotage? I think there's something that's like very difficult to sustain about destructive, okay, the work of sabotage is like a destructive work, of course, right? It's undermining. And of course, like you can't sustain that over a long period of time. Like that's very, very difficult to do. I think that's why you need to have the active work of planning an escape to go along with the sabotaging of like the, the bridge construction, which one, Nicholson is not willing to do. Therefore, he has to do something like active and creative because otherwise the destructive element, the sabotage element burns itself up and cancels itself out without that positive escape plan. So like thinking honestly about it, like I would rather be involved in the work of like actually actively building a good bridge then mm-hmm. in for months and months and months, putting up one thing and, no, and making sure that it's like built on sand so that in two days it'll collapse. So then you try it again. You know what I mean? So this destructive enterprise cannot be sustained over a long period of time.
0: Well, I think that's where Nicholson is right. Right. He's absolutely right. It is better for them individually. It's better for the men. It's better for the little social group that they have in that camp. It definitively improves morale and even the kind of characters of people, right? Which have degenerated. And you can see they they might naturally degenerate in captivity, especially if you're in the state of being sabotaging all the time.
1: I wanted to relate that to Warden though, Mm. because I'm wondering if, yeah, if there's a relation to this idea of captivity, not just in terms of like not having freedom, but sort of being limited in one's resources. You know, I guess for Warden, there's always another bridge to burn, (laughs) you know, there's always something else to blow up, but I don't think that's an interesting enough.
0: Well, I think, you know, no, you're getting at something which I thought about, which I think is important. And I tried to give some thought to this as well, which is, so we've made a connection, like on first appearances, Warden actually seems quite absorbed in his work and quite delighted with it in a way, like, you know, playfully tossing (laughs) them as explosives and Mm -hmm. shears. And with Nicholson, you get more of an obsession. And it's as if with Nicholson, it's more connected to pride. And with Warden, it's just more connected to the work, which is odd Mm -hmm. because it's so destructive. But you kind of have to combine all the different elements here, I think, to get a full picture of what work ought to be. So I think there's a place for all of these things, right? There's a place for Saito's conception of just being busy and being obedient to some higher order. There's a place for Nicholson's pride. There's a place for Warden's destructiveness and absorption in work. If you think of the destructiveness as having something to do with part of the larger process, right, you need the positive part, which is the Nicholson part. You need to be able to build things as well. But maybe you need to be able to destroy in the sense of rearrange and start over. And, you know, you need love and leisure as well, which is what Dick <laughs> years to be representing. And then there's the Clipton principle as well, which we haven't mentioned. But the medical officer has his own conception of work, which is repair. It's to repair people, to help heal them. So I think if you put all those things together, you could get a fuller conception of work. But each one apart is obviously not enough. And what kind of war in a way has a function of severing all those different components and letting people get stuck in one or the other. But of course, we all do that anyway. You know, we may have all of those things, but get stuck in one or another at a different time. You know, like I become obsessed with a project and I'm just driven to do it to the point where it's no longer absorbing or enjoyable, or I get focused on... The pride part, you know, is this going to get me recognition? Is this, you know, going to be career building? Something like that. So, anyway.
1: And yet it seems as though the film is kind of arguing that Shears' idea is the best idea, too. And I like the fact that you point out that his um, pursuit of leisure involves a lot of work, you yes, know? Yeah. <laughs> So, he's sort of a one man ecosystem, uh, according to the way that the film draws his schematics for how he's achieving this, because he's able to enjoy his leisure because it takes a lot of work to get it. And there's something satisfying for him in that anyway. You're making me think of, because of the destructiveness, you know, I'm thinking about how there would have to be like a great plan for escape, like a great creative plan for escape in order to carry out the project of sabotage at the POW camp and still give the men something like positive to do. Which makes me think that, like that, you know, the perfect companion film to this is, of course, The Great Escape. You know, (laughs) thinking about the parallels actually, as you were talking, was really fascinating to me because they are also, in a sense, building a bridge. The men in The Great Escape—it's a film I love. I don't know if you like that movie too, but yeah, yeah. And the kind of destructiveness of the fact that, like, in the end, you know, spoiler alert—like, pretty much everybody dies trying to do this is interesting too, and they kind of know that they're going to die. But the ways in which that work of escape brings everyone together is kind of like, that's sort of the ideal of what you can do in a POW camp that is um, creative and also not aiding and abetting the enemy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the tunnel under the under the ground too, it is kind of like a perfect mirror image of this bridge over the ground that's going to give passage to the Japanese soldiers versus the sort of like photographic negative image of that. Um, just interesting
0: okay is that a good place to end it
1: i think so maybe all right
0: (laughs) we'll say a little bit more about the movie in our postscript but yeah thank you thank you thank you to everyone who listened to this episode to get ad-free episodes and episodes of our after show postscript please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext also this podcast is part of the airwave media podcast network Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other airwave shows like food, with former New York Times food journalist and best-selling author Mark Bittman, and Movie Therapy, in which Siskel and Ebert meets Dear Abby.
1: That's airwavemedia.com.